This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. It's Zoomer Radio's Theater of the Mind with Frank Proctor. Open your mind as we fill your head with amazing thrills, chills, <laughs> and laughs. Theater of the Mind, the best love programs from radio's golden age, only on Zoomer Radio. Now, here is your master storyteller, Frank Proctor. Well, thank you, and welcome to the show. Ever wake up one morning and feel like you just want to stay snuggled up in bed and not answer that damned alarm clock? In fact, you might even be tempted to, well, you know, kind of fake not feeling well, just so you can rest those weary bones for a few more hours. We've all been there, right? Ah, but sometimes we're hoisted by our own petard, skewered by the truth, perhaps. In other words, caught dead to rights. Well, that's what happens to the great Gildersleeve in tonight's show. Kraft presents the Great Gildersleeve. <laughs> the Kraft Cheese Company will also bring you the Kraft Music Hall every Thursday night. Present each week at this time Harold Perry as the Great Gildersleeve, written by John Wheaton and Sam Moore. Let's join the great Gildersleeve. Last week, you remember, we found him remodeling his existence pretty drastically, hoping to make up for years of a wasted life by having breakfast every morning at 6.30. Now, let's see how he's bearing up under his 1944 regime as Monday morning rolls around. Oh! It's dark. Cold. I'll shut that darn thing off. Yeah. Just snooze a few minutes longer. <laughs> and so the great man rolls over as who is not and catches another 40 winks. Half an hour later, he's still sound asleep. Hey, young, get up. Breakfast is ready. <laughs> Go away. Leave me alone. Come on, you've been making everybody get up at 6.30. You gotta play fair. Leave me alone, Leroy. Uncle Lloyd, I thought you were up long ago. What's the matter? Nothing's the matter. What's all the excitement? Well, breakfast's been ready for 15 minutes. Why aren't you off? Well, I, uh, the alarm clock didn't go off. But it's almost a quarter of seven. You're not sick, are you? Sick? Uh, I might be. <laughs> I don't feel exactly, uh, I don't know. Oh, I hope you're not getting the flu. Any pain in your chest? <laughs> sort of. <laughs> uh, you kind of ache all over? Oh, I guess so. Oh, dear, i better call Dr. Pettibone. Oh, no, no, doctor. I'll, I'll be all right. Oh, yes. With all the flu there is in town, I'm not taking any chances. Uh? Leroy, get the thermometer, will you, while I call Dr. Pettibone? Sure. I haven't any fever. Now, never mind. Keep it in your mouth for three minutes and don't look at it. Big secret, eh? Here it is, Unc. I won't do it. Now, be brave. Shake, shake it down, Leroy. It only says 98 now. Shake it down anyway. Maybe I'm subnormal. Could be. <laughs> 
shake it down and bring me my watch off the dresser. Well, I can tell a minute by counting to 60. Bring the watch, Leroy. Okay. Okay, you don't have to get too excited. Mr. Gillsleeve, what's this out here? Oh, don't worry about me, Bertie. Probably nothing at all. Oh, my sister had the flu and it's terrible. You better not take any chances. Does it hurt when you breathe? Yes. It sort of hurts a little. Oh, my goodness. I don't suppose you want any breakfast then, will you? Huh? Well, whatever's the best for me, Bertie. What's the saying, though? Feed a cold and starve a fever? I suppose flu is like a cold. Maybe you got a fever. You haven't taken your temperature yet. Leroy, go get your breakfast. Okay, okay. Gosh, you try to help. Yeah, I think I better have a little, well, a pretty substantial breakfast, Bertie. Try to head this thing off. Yes, sir. Mm, Just plain things, of course. Nothing rich or fancy. Oh, no, sir. A little dry toast and tea, maybe? Uh, well, I think a half a grapefruit, perhaps. Some oatmeal with a little cream sugar. Eggs turned over with a few slices of bacon. Uh, crisp. Uh, some toast, possibly marmalade, and uh, plenty of hot coffee. Uh, you think you can handle all that? Yeah, I'll try, Bertie, but I don't think I'd better get up. Oh, no, sir. I'll bring it to you right here. Yeah, thank you, Bertie. Uncle Moore, Dr. Petty will, will be here about nine. Now, you just stay here and rest while we have breakfast. All right, my dear. Confounded nuisance getting Dr. Pettibone over. Still... You can't be any too careful. <laughs> well, Rock Mountain, do you feel strong enough to see a visitor? Oh, hello, Leela. Oh, come in and sit down. Well, I don't think I'd better come very close. I'm scared to death of the flu. Oh, well, I don't know. It's the flu. That's just Marjorie's idea. I must say, you don't look a bit sick. Oh, Oh, uh, you can't tell, Leela. Mm. These things sneak up on you. Marjorie's called the doctor. Oh, what doctor did she call? Uh, Pettibone, naturally. He's always been my doctor. Well, there are other doctors in Summerfield. Well, you've always called Pettibone. Yes, but he's not really very satisfactory. I believe I'll try Dr. Hargrave next time. I hear he's much more scientific. Uh, who told you Hargrave was scientific? Well, lots of people. He told me himself, too. <laughs> Oh? Where did you meet him? At that party New Year's Eve. Didn't you meet him? I don't think so. Mm-hmm. I guess you and Miss Goodwin didn't bother much with meeting people. We met everybody that was there. Well, you couldn't forget Dr. Hargrave. He's very tall, distinguished, slender. <laughs> I knew right away he must be a surgeon. He has the loveliest times. Uh-huh. <laughs> Was he the fellow that took you out in the kitchen? Oh, no. Hmm. Was he the one that was following you around with a plate of ice cream? Oh, that silly man. No, that's not the one. Oh, I know. He was the fellow you were waltzing with. Throckmorton, I'm simply amazed at how much you noticed me. And all evening, poor Miss Goodwin thought you had eyes only for her. Stop harping on Miss Goodwin. Was it Hargrave you were whirling around with? Oh, he waltzes beautifully. It's because he studied in Vienna, you know. Everybody in Vienna waltzes beautifully, I've heard. Why don't you try Dr. Hargrave, Throckmorton? Because I want a doctor, not a dancer. Oh, Oh, poo. Dr. Hargrave's ten times the doctor that old Pettibone is. He studied all about the glands and everything. Yeah, just as I thought. One of these fellows with a smooth bedside manner treats women for diseases they haven't got. Oh, Martin, I do believe you're jealous. I am not. I'm sick. 
Oh, oh yes, I forgot. You shouldn't be getting me all stirred up like this, Leela. Uh, Mr. Moore, here's Dr. Pettibone. Oh? Uh, well, at least I know he'll be honest with me. Oh, hiya, Doc. Hello, Gildersleeve. <clears throat> morning, Mrs. Ransom. Oh, good morning, Dr. Pettibone. I was just telling Throckmorton how relieved I am that he's in your hands. Oh. Yes, Thanks. Well, what's the matter with you, Gildersleeve? Well, he's been complaining of pain in the chest and, and general aches all over. It sounds like flu. Uh-huh. Well, we'll soon see. Unbutton your nightshirt. Well, I guess we'd better go, Marjorie. See you later, Throckmorton. Yes, well, if you're sick, I'm no doctor. Stick out your tongue. Uh, uh, biggest tongue I ever saw on a human. <laughs> I always did say so and always will. Take a deep breath. I didn't get you up here to insult my physique. Come on, come on. Hurry up, hurry up. I've got really sick people to take care of. Boy, George, I... Take a breath. Uh-huh. What'd you have for breakfast? Just a light breakfast. Hardly anything. Now, you might as well give me the facts. I'll check with Bertie anyhow when I go downstairs. Now, listen here, Pettibone. There's such a thing as medical ethics, whether you've ever heard of them or not. I don't mind you being old-fashioned and ignorant, but when you go snooping around my house, well, you just watch out, that's all. Now, don't holler at me. It's bad for your blood pressure. There's nothing the matter with my blood pressure. There's nothing the matter with you, period. Get up and put on your clothes and go to work. You haven't examined me. Yes, well, I don't have to. I've seen you before when you didn't feel like going to the office. Are you suggesting I'm faking? I am. That settles it. I'm going to send for a doctor. Well, go ahead. I'm busy. i got plenty to do. No, you don't. You'll stick around and learn something. That's all right with me at my usual rates. Marjorie, call Dr. Hargrave. Wait a minute, Hargrave. What's that thing? This? Just a pharyngeal speculum. What are you going to do with it? Inspect the pharyngeal passages, look for signs of cystosis, calamoid formations, that sort of thing. Do you agree it's a wise precaution, Dr. Pettibone? Very sensible, Dr. Hargrave. Will it hurt? No, no. Just like quiet. It won't take a moment. Hmm. <laughs> hmm. Slight enlargement of the epiglottic fold, superficial erosion of the stenotic fibers... No evidence of gray bars and interstices. You care to have a look, Doctor? Yes, I might as well. Eh, this is a nice gadget, Doctor. Yes, I've used it for several years, Doctor. Had a case of Ergofolds disease in 1940. This thing was invaluable. Mm-hmm, I can imagine. Mm-hmm. I concur with your findings, Doctor. Thank you, Doctor. Well, Mr. Gildersleeve, I think we can safely say you're not suffering from either primary or advanced pharyngitis, Mitchell's disease, Ergofolds disease, or laryngeal mycoma. Are they all fatal? Oh, no. No, you mustn't be nervous in an examination of this kind, you know. Just a careful checkup. Uh, now, let's see. You uh, complained of breathing difficulty? It's all right now. Yeah, now, Gildersleeve, you ask for an examination and you're going to get it. You're no longer in charge, Pettibone. Mr. Gildersleeve, I'm merely consulting with Dr. Pettibone. Oh, no. Dr. Pettibone is consulting with you. Oh, was that your understanding, Doctor? Whatever you like, Doctor. Well, in any case, I certainly want to examine your lungs. All right, let's get at it. And keep your eyes open, Pettibone. I don't think Dr. Pettibone has anything to learn from me. Uh, by the way, Doctor, I've been meaning to ask you, are you any relation to the Pettibone who performed the operation in the famous Danbury Gallstones case in 1914? Yes, that was my own case, Doctor. Not really. 
Well, it's an honor to meet you. Oh, yeah, there was a lot of luck in it. Oh, I don't believe it. It was very similar to the case of Perigord in Paris a year or so later. Oh, yes, I remember Perigord's case. But uh, we mustn't forget the famous case of Sneeden in London. Do either of you gentlemen remember Gildersleeve's case? <laughs> Uh, that uh, that reminds me, I've got an appointment. Uh, you're in good hands, Gildersleeve. Uh, if you'll excuse me, Doctor. Oh, uh, could I have a word with you privately, Doctor? Oh, yes, sir. Now, wait a minute. None of that. I want everything out in the open. Quiet. Remember your blood pressure. Uh, approve a thorough checkup in every department, Doctor? Well, that's up to you, Doctor. I don't see how to do any harm. Some very contradictory symptoms here. I think I'll take him down to the hospital. Ah, oh, very likely the ride is doing good. What are you two talking about over there? You. Well, stop shaking your head. You make me nervous. Well, goodbye, Doctor. So long, Gildersleeve. Goodbye. Uh, fine man. Splendid physician. Never mind, Hargrave. What are you going to do to me now? Well, we're just going to take you down to the hospital, Mr. Gildersleeve. Hospital? What for? Just for observation. How soon do I have to go? Just as soon as I can get an ambulance. Ambulance? Oh, this is going to be one of my bad days. It is already. Let's see now how Gildersleeve's making out. When we left him, he was on his way to the Summerfield Hospital for observation. And there we find him now in room 218. The shades are lowered, the light is dim, everything is hushed and antiseptic. Dressed in a hospital nightshirt and laid out on a hospital bed, Gildersleeve lies rigid while Dr. Hargrave holds his wrist and times his pulse with a handsome watch. Mm-hmm. What is it, Doctor? Well, it doesn't mean anything necessarily. What are you going to do now? What are you writing? Just making a few notes here on your chart. What does it say? Can I see it? I hardly think you'd understand it. Better just to lie here and relax. How can I relax if I don't know what's going on? No, no, no. Just relax, drink plenty of liquids, get a good night's sleep, and in the morning we'll give you a thorough going over. What do you mean? Well, we have certain tests, metabolism and so on. I've left full instructions. Doc, you're not going. Oh, I'll drop by again this evening. You're not going to leave me here alone without a little crab out in the hall. Miss Fosdick? I don't know her name. She came in here and took my clothes. Well, you have to make allowances these days. The floor nurses are badly overworked. Anyway, I've arranged for a special nurse for you. Uh, uh, do I need a special nurse? Well, I, I thought you might like one. She's no ordinary nurse. Yeah. <laughs> yes, Miss Riley's handled a good many cases for me. She'll be coming on any minute now, so if you don't mind, I think I'll be running along. That's perfectly all right, Doctor. You I'll go right ahead. I'll you again this evening, and in the meantime, don't worry. Don't worry. Yeah, not a bad fellow. Wonder what he charges. <laughs> Gosh, three visits already. Ambulance, $6 a day for the room, at least $8 for the nurse. Hoo-hoo. <laughs> Miss Riley, eh? Yeah, probably Irish. Blue eyes and black hair. Sure, a little bit of heaven fell from out the sky one day. <laughs> oh, nurse, I feel terrible. <laughs> oh, I wonder what the doctor wrote on that little chart. Maybe I could just take a peek. Gee, 
floor is cold. Where are my slippers? Oh, way under the bed. Get back in that bed! Oh! <laughs> what are you doing under there? What are you doing in my room? I didn't ring for any nurse. Get back in that bed. Now listen, I have a special nurse of my own coming, Miss Riley. I'm Riley. He. <laughs> no. Now get into that bed before I throw you in, and don't think I couldn't do it. Uh, I won't argue with you there, sister. <laughs> you see that? All muscle, not a bit of fat. <laughs> Which is more than you can say. Now, you be a good boy and behave yourself, or you're going to hear from me. Yes, ma'am. You do just as you're told, we'll get along fine. The better you know me, the better you'll like me. Uh They all do. Why, the last patient I had gave me a fitted suitcase. Not that I'm going anywhere. (laughs) Gosh, who's dying? Let's have a little daylight in here. Hey! Well, shut your eyes. You'll get used to it. Where'd the flowers come from? Friend of mine. They smell. I'll give them to the little girl down the hall. Here, put this in your mouth. I've already had my temperature taken. Put it in your mouth. All right. Keep it under your tongue. (laughs) Don't talk. How do you like my charm bracelet? My boyfriend gave me that for Christmas. Ever see one like that? Oh, yeah. Don't talk. (laughs) You know, you don't look like any invalid to me. How long have you been in here? Uh, 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 Keep your mouth shut. (laughs) Well, I, I see they haven't been starving you anyway. Been putting on a little there lately, haven't you? Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, uh. Well, I guess that's long enough. Here. Uh, oh, you haven't got any temperature anyway, or have you? What is it? What does it say? Don't be nosy now. Uh, uh, tell me, have I got a fever? I think you'll pull out of it. What are you writing? Just putting it down on your chart. Let me see it. Oh, no, you don't. Where are you going now? Just down the hall. What for? To make little boys ask questions. <laughs> Oh, by George, I am sick. She's going to call the doctor. If I just knew what was on that chart. Well, one little peek wouldn't do any harm. And don't let me catch you getting out of bed. Oh! Yes? Are you awake, Gildy? Oh, that's you, Josh? Yes, come in. Well, well, so they finally... <laughs> now, Seahook. Hooker, I'm not supposed to get excited. I'm sorry, Gilbert, I'm sorry. <laughs> but you look so darn funny. <laughs> There's nothing funny about it. I'm a very sick man. Sorry, old man. Sorry, yeah. sorry. Of course, it's not funny. I just came up to inquire how you were. I wasn't even going to disturb you, but I, I thought I'd just tiptoe in for a minute and... Then when I saw you lying there in that bungalow ape. <laughs> now listen, you. I'm sorry. I'm this is sorry. no bungalow apron. It's a hospital nightshirt, and I didn't design it. Well, how do you get into it? Well, if you must know, it buttons up the back. Oh, surgical gown, probably. Huh? When I had mine uh, out... It's a what? Surgical gown. They use them on the operating table. Uh, Easier to slip off and slip on again. Uh, judge, close the door. What for? Close it. Just as you say. Now, did you talk to anybody before you came in here? Just the nurse down the hall. What'd she say? Well, she told me where you're to find you and said not to stay too long. Uh, what'd she say about me? Not a thing. Oh, just as I thought. What do you mean? They won't talk to me either. I can't get a straight answer from any of them, Judge. They won't even tell me what's wrong with me. And that Dr. Hargrave... I hear he's a very good man. A hard man to put your finger on. 
Well, I understand he studied in Vienna. Maybe he did. What do they teach him in Vienna? You don't know, and I don't know. Some pretty strange things have come out of Vienna. Oh, you're just imagining things. <laughs> I'm imagining nothing. Listen, this morning I felt fine. Well, not fine, exactly. A little tired, maybe, and a little run down. So I let him call in Dr. Pettibone. I thought maybe he'd give me a tonic or something and tell me to stay off my feet. It was Leela who talked me into this. This Hargrave fellow seems to have some kind of power over her. <laughs> Only the power that a handsome fellow has over any woman, I'd say. Well, he's not so handsome. I think it's that Vienna stuff. Finger kissing. By George, I wish I had Pettibone back. He told me to get up and go to work. But this bird sends me to the hospital for observation. What's that? Well, he just wants to check your symptoms and see whether they develop. There's more to it than that. He's got me a special nurse. You don't say. I can't tell. There's something in the wind. Now, listen, Gilly. At the worst, it'll all be over in a few days. With this modern science, removing an appendix is as easy as taking the nickel out of a purse. Yeah. Who said anything about an appendix? Well, that's one of the things they watch. Did they take a blood test? Well, yes. They took a lot of tests. When the doctor was examining you, did he prod you in the tummy? Well, yes. Appendix. He, he looked down at my throat. He couldn't see my appendix from there. <laughs> Well, it could be tonsils, but appendicitis is more likely. And believe me, Gildy, it's nothing. Why, I had mine out five years ago. Look. I don't want to look. And they do, all they do, they give you a couple of sleeping pills to make you drowsy. Pills? Then they sneak up on you and clap that cone over your face with the ether. <laughs> Before you know it, bingo. That's what I'm afraid of, that bingo. <laughs> well, how's the patient? Ready to go betty-bye? Uh, hello, Miss Riley. This is Judge Hooker. My lawyer. How do you do? Always glad to meet a lawyer. I might need one myself someday. I was just leaving, Miss Riley. Judge, don't go. The judge is right. We're closing up here now. Yeah. I'll just get you a glass of water. Judge. Yes, Gildy? Do me a favor. Get Dr. Pettibone back in the case. But, Gildy, how can I do that? You fired him. I don't exactly... I didn't fire him. I just insulted him. Get him back, Judge. I don't care how you do it. Well, I'll try. Tell him to be here the first thing in the morning before they can do anything. I want him to keep an eye on this Hargrave fellow. Here we are. Take the glass. Uh, what for? I'm not thirsty. Well, goodbye, Gildy. Oh, I almost forgot what I came up here for. Here, I wanted to get your legal signature on this. What is it? Just a power of attorney. Gives me the legal right to act for you. You know, and... In case anything happens, it's always best. <laughs> Hooker, I wish you wouldn't come around with things like that at a time like this. Give me your pen. Look out, you're spilling the water. You take it. Sign right there now. Uh, Ralph Martin, P. Gildersleeve. That's pretty shaky, but I guess it'll do. Well, goodbye, Gildy. Sweet dreams. Judge, don't forget. Forget what? You know. Oh, yes, Pettibone. Yeah, I'll do what I can. Bye. Now, sunny boy. You're going to have a nice, long sleep. I doubt if I sleep a week. Oh, yes, you will. Here, take these. What are they? Just pills. What kind of pills? Sleeping pills. George Hooker, George! together. Huh? You've got company waiting. Company? Here. Comb your hair. You look terrible. Thanks. Um, 
What time is it? 10.30. I must have slept. I'll say you slept 14 hours. Well, I was overdue. <laughs> that look better? I guess you won't scare anybody. All right, you can come in now. Oh, oh, Uncle Lord. Marjorie. How are you? How do you feel? Did you have a good night? Hi, Uncle. Oh, and little Leroy. Leroy, why aren't you in school? He insisted on coming. I was worried about you, Uncle. I had to know how you were. Well, that's very touching, my boy. <laughs> if true. Bertie, it's all right. You can come in. Bertie, too? What is this? Oh, Mr. Gillsley, to see you lying there like that. I've been praying for you every minute. If that thing was to happen to you, I just don't know what I'd do. Now, careful, Bertie. Remember what the doctor said. What did the doctor say? Nothing, Uncle Mort. Listen, what's this all about? What's everybody gathering here for? Who sent for you? Nobody. I don't believe it. I know. It's the crisis. <laughs> you don't have to fool me. I can take it. Where's the doctor? Doctor! Now, now, calm down, Uncle Mort. Dr. Hargrave is right across the hall. He'll be in in a minute. I know. They're coming for me with that thing. What thing? They sneak up and clap it over your face. <laughs> Leroy... I've always been a good uncle to you, haven't I? Sure, you've been okay. You've been swell. You wouldn't keep anything from me now, would you? Not me. What did the doctor say, Leroy? What did he say? Didn't say a thing. You too. <laughs> Bertie, have I ever spoken a harsh word to you? Have I ever complained about anything you did? Oh, no, Mr. Gilsey, you ain't. You're the best man I ever worked for, and that's a fact. Bertie, be quiet. Now, here comes the doctor. Stand over here, Leroy. I don't want anybody to get behind me. Well, well, how are we feeling this morning? I... <clears throat> I feel fine, Doctor. Splendid, splendid. I wonder if I could ask you people to step outside for a few minutes. Oh, certainly. Is that necessary? Well, it's customary. Monday, Roy. Monday. Aren't you even going to say goodbye? Oh, you'll be seeing them again. Miss Riley, if you'll close that door, please. Yes, Doctor. What for? Now, wait a minute. Before you start doing anything, Dr. Pettibone was supposed to be coming down here. I yes, said for yes, it. I've already had the benefit of the Doctor's excellent advice. You mean he's been here? We just conferred across the hall. Uh, roll up your sleeve. Why? Please. Excellent diagnostician, Dr. Pettibone. Now, Miss Riley, thank you. What's that? What are you rubbing on my arm? Just a little alcohol. Dr. Pettibone and I went over the records and results of the tests, and we found ourselves in complete agreement on every point. <sighs> I'm happy to say that we can give you a clean bill of health, except for one thing. What's that? We failed to find any sign that you have ever been vaccinated. The needle, please, Miss Riley. Oh, no, you don't. Lie still. I'm on to that trick. Miss Riley. I've got him, Doctor. Oh. <laughs> Let me up. Let me up. Oh. Lie still, you big baby. You want me to sit on you? Doctor. <laughs> doctor. Oh, please. Let him go, Miss Riley. <laughs> really, old man, you ought to get hold of yourself. You want your nephew to hear you carrying on like that? I'm ashamed. I guess I lost my head there for a minute. Well, it's not uncommon. All right. Go ahead, Doc. I can take it. Why, it's all done. All done? You mean... It's all over. You're vaccinated. I'm... <laughs> Marjorie! Leroy! Look, I'm vaccinated. <laughs> Well, I 
guess I'll be paying doctor bills for months, but I was lucky I didn't have the flu. The flu's been pretty bad here in Summerfield. Mr. Peavy's been down with it for a couple of weeks, I'm sorry to say. Of course, he's been with us in spirit all the while. <laughs> but I know you'll all be glad to hear that he'll be back in business at the old drugstore next week. Good night, everybody. <laughs> Music heard on this program was directed by Claude Sweet. This is Ken Carpenter speaking for the Kraft Cheese Company, inviting you to listen again next week for the further adventures of the Great Gildersleeve. Stay tuned for Suspense next on Theater of the Mind. You're listening to Theater of the Mind on Zuma Radio, AM 740 and 96.7 FM in downtown Toronto. Like to be scared? Oh, well, then you've come to the right place. Ah, yes. It's time for the hair in the back of your neck to rise all on its own as you listen to Suspense and the episode that was first aired in 1943 entitled Fire Burn Cauldron Bubble. Man in Black, here again to introduce Columbia's program, Suspense. Our distinguished star this evening is the stage and screen favorite, Mr. Paul Lucas, whose performance is in The Lady Vanishes, and in the stage production, The Watch on the Rhine, you will recall with pleasure. Tonight's tale of suspense is a story by John Dixon Carr, Fire, Burn, and Cauldron Bubble. If you've been with us on these Tuesday nights, you will know that suspense is compounded of mystery and suspicion and dangerous adventure. In this series are tales calculated to intrigue you, to stir your nerves, to offer you a precarious situation and then withhold the solution until the last possible moment. And so with Fire Burn and Cauldron Bubble and the performance of Paul Lucas and the other members of our company, we again hope to keep you in... Drury Lane Theater presents the distinguished American actor, Myron Willard, in Shakespeare's Macbeth, with magic effects especially designed by Ludwig von Arnheim. Historic Drury Lane Theatre, a relic of old London. On this site, in the cramped and crooked lanes of Aldwych, there has been a playhouse since Nell Gwynne sold oranges in the pit. The present theatre, though modernized, is heavy and darkened with time. By daylight, it is a dinginess of red plush seats, haunted by old ghosts. But at night, when the lights bloom for some new production... When the murmur of a crowd fills the carpeted aisles and the orchestra begins to tune up, 
It is kindled with that strange magic before the rise of the curtain. Put it this way, sir. E12 and 13. Program. Talking. Thank you. No, madam, this is Rowie, your seat for G4. And backstage, where nerves crawl and there is a tendency to scream, the three witches of the play are huddled around the peephole in the curtain, looking out into the audience. They are hideous-looking creatures, these witches, in gray rags like cobwebs. But as they speak... Dear, I am scared. Don't let it bother you, darling. You can't even see the audience when the floats are on. There's nothing to worry about. Nothing except the size of the take at the box office. You won't even have to worry about that tonight. Look out there. You two are shaking as much as I am. Now, don't pretend. All right, all right. Everybody's jumpy on first nights. What I can't understand is why they want to use young girls as witches and then make us talk in cracked voices as though we were 80. Double, double, toil and travel, fire, burn, and cauldron, bubble. Oh, oh, what's that? Daisy, darling, it's only one of the ghost effects. You've been hearing it for weeks at rehearsals. I will say this for Martin Willard, as an actor and a manager, too. He's the first one who's ever had a real professional magician to do the ghost effects for this ham show. Oh, are they serious? Look there. Where? Out in the audience in the second upper box on the left-hand side. Oh. Don't you see the woman who's just coming in? Yes, I can see her. Not a bad-looking bit of goods for her age. What about her? But that's Marcia Blair. Marcia Blair? You don't mean you've never heard of her. I can't say I have either if it comes to that. Move over, Ivy. Give us a squint. Marcia Blair used to be Mr. Willard's leading lady. She was a very great actress 15 years ago. Oh, 15 years ago. She's had a terribly romantic history. Well, she's made lots of money and retired from the stage. Then she married some horrible no good. And did you see that tall gray-haired man standing beside her? Well, he doesn't look much like a no good. That's not the man I mean, Celia. That's Howard White, her second husband. Oh. They say he loved her for years and followed her about and practically worshipped her. But she was married to this no-good and wouldn't get a divorce. Then the no-good died, I suppose. So Marcia Blair and her faithful Howard got married. Yes. I remember reading in the paper that they've been married one year tonight. I... I expect they're very happy. Well, I'd be happy, too, if I had a mink coat and a string of pearls like that. Well, you've got to admit she's beautiful. All right, Katie, if you say so. I used to go and see her act when I was a little girl. She... she was kind of an idol. I wonder what they're saying to each other up in that box now. I wonder what they're saying. Marcia, dear, I wish you wouldn't be so uneasy. Nothing can happen to you here. You're uneasy yourself, Howard. Yes, I suppose I am a little. Howard... I know I shouldn't be talking like this on our first anniversary. But that's what worries me. What if Barry isn't dead? What if he isn't dead? Oh, listen to me, darling. Your late husband, heaven condemn his soul, died in New York more than a year ago. We have proof of that. Well, then who wrote those letters to me? I don't know, dear. Somebody playing a joke on you. Joke? If you marry him, Marsha, you won't be alive a year from then. Joke. But you're married to me, my dear, and you are alive. Shall I quote you something from another play, Howard? Well? The Ides of March are come. I, Caesar, but not gone. And it's still two hours. Two hours to the time we were actually married. Oh, look here, dear. 
This is carrying an obsession too far. It would be just like Barry to wait until the last moment, just to make it worse. You knew him. Yes, I knew him. He was a genius. I suppose so. As a mere businessman, I've never quite understood this theatrical temperament, huh? except yours, of course. Barry was a greater actor than Myron Willard will ever be. Barry could play anything, from a cockney to King Lear. His skill at makeup wasn't merely good. It was terrifying. Oh, how would I am frightened. Suppose he's managed to get close to us tonight, and, and yet we can't see him. Well, the music started, Marcia. I, I shall have to go. Must you go, Howard? Really? If I break this appointment with Ferndale, dear, the deal will be called off. And since I haven't got too much backing anyway, I... All right, dear. I understand. Go ahead. Unless you wanted to come with me. And Miss Myron's opening tonight? Oh, I couldn't do that. I tell you, you'll be perfectly safe here, dear. Of course, Howard. I know that. You're in full view of 3,000 people. Nobody could attack you. The only door to this box is guarded. Outside that door will be Miss Fenton, who's devoted to you. And the chauffeur who's even more devoted to you. What could happen, dear? Nothing, of course. And I'd prefer to be alone anyway. Yes, I rather guess oh, that. Oh, please, dear. It's just that I can't endure anybody being with me when I'm watching a great play. But that doesn't include you, darling. Then, if you'll accept these, madam, in honor of our first anniversary... Oh, Howard! Well, they're lovely. Of course I'll accept them. And here's a program. Got everything else you need... Yes. Yes, I think so. I'll just open the door to the passage to make sure our watchdogs are on guard. Yes, they're out there, all right. Good night, Marcia. See you in an hour or two. Good night, Howard. And good luck. Miss Fenton, Bradley. Yes, Mr. White. Yes, sir, anything wrong? Miss Fenton, you've been my wife's companion secretary for five or six years. Yes, Mr. White, and I've loved every minute of it. And you, Bradley... You haven't been my chauffeur for quite so long, but they tell me you're an ex-wrestler. That's right, sir. Champion of the Shoreditch Athletic Club. And in me prime, though I says it as shouldn't, as good a man as ever climbed through the ropes. Now, you know your instructions badly. You trust me, sir. Nobody gets into this here box tonight unless it's over my dead body. Nothing must happen, do you understand? Nothing. Please, you're as white as paper. As for you, Miss Fenton, I'm afraid it's a little awkward. I know I ought to ask you to go in and join, Marcia, but... Oh, you needn't apologize, Mr. White. I know she doesn't want company. She'll be leaning forward with her elbows on the box rail, just as she always does. She isn't merely watching a play. She's acting, Lady Macbeth. Every line, every gesture. Oh, and I don't mean to disturb her. You, you won't leave this door, either of you. You trust me, sir. If... Hello? Oh, anything wrong, Bradley? It is a very rummy-looking cove coming along the passage, sir. Wearing a big black cloak with a red lining. Oh, that man, Bradley. That's only Herr von Arnheim. He's a professional magician and escape artist. I was just wondering. Excuse me. Don't worry, Mr. White. We'll look after her. Von Arnheim. I say, von Arnheim. Thou canst not say I did it. Never shake the gory locks at me. I <laughs> beg your pardon. And I beg yours, my friend. I was merely quoting a line from the play. You are not leaving the theater. Surely not walking out on Macbeth. I'm afraid I've got to. Oh, that's a pity, my friend. You will miss some of my best effects, to say nothing of Shakespeare's. <laughs> when Banquo's ghost appears at the table. I don't want to hear any more about ghosts, thanks. Banquo's or anybody else's. I imagine you mean your wife's late husband. You've heard about it, then? Yes, your wife has told me a good deal. She seemed to think that in my profession I might have some charm over demons or spell against ghosts. 
You know, Renan Ham, in a muddled kind of way, that's what I've been wondering myself. Mm, unfortunately, no. I am all too human. But your problem interests me. And I confess it worries me. What is you? What about me? As I understand it, her first husband was a half-mad American actor who later went completely mad and died in New York. His, uh... Oh, what's the word I want? Our obsession? Uh, that's it, obsession. His obsession was Marcia Blair's eyes. Yes, always her eyes. They seemed to hypnotize him. It is not new, you know. You'll find the same motive, the eyes of a beautiful woman, all through the works of Edgar Allan Poe. Then, as I understand it, after this man's death, she began to receive a series of letters. Foul letters, apparently written by him, and threatening her with some rather horrible form of death if she married you. I tell you, Barry Lake is dead. He can't get up out of his coffin. Oh, getting out of coffins, my friend, is not so difficult. I have done it myself. Oh, please stop joking, Van Arnheim. You don't happen to be dead. True. There is that small difference. Um, is your wife here in the theater tonight? Yes. She wouldn't have come here except that it's Marin Willard's first night. We haven't seen Marin, either of us, in years. She's back there in box D. Mm, so I hear. Uh, I was hoping uh, that you might invite me to share the box. Look here, old man. I, I don't want to seem inhospitable, but uh, she doesn't want company. Well, that's about it. Well, then walk back a little distance with me, this way. So that we can see the stage from the back of the dress circle. Now the orchestra has stopped and they'll ring up in a moment. There. Look at it. Look at what? The stage man. The lights have gone out. All except the dim yellow footlights shining at the curtain. The last cough, the last murmur, the last rustle of program dies away in one vast breathing hush. The curtain goes up. Let go of my arm, Van Arnheim. I've got to leave. Now, what are the stage directions? Desert place, thunder and lightning. Enter three witches. When, indeed, I wonder. I beg your pardon, Van Arnhem? Do you no, speak? No, it was nothing. Myron Willard triumphed Drury Lane as Macbeth. But tonight, as the clock ticks on, there is another drama in the dimly lighted corridor outside Box D. There sits Miss Louise Fenton, Marcia Blair's companion secretary. Beside her, burly and broken-nosed, is Big Jim Bradley, the ex-wrestler. And when more than half an hour has passed, There's the applause, Jim. That must be the end of the first act. Yes, I hear it. Nothing's happened. I take my word for it, nothing's going to happen. Oh, she's such a likable person, Jim. 
And I think one of our greatest Shakespearean actresses. Oh, I don't much care for this Shakespeare business, miss. You give me a good movie with gangsters in it. It's my style. Oh, you don't understand, Jim. I've seen her as Juliet, as Rosalind, as Portia. In our own drawing room without any props. I've heard her as Lady Macbeth, too. You should see her eyes. Her uh, eyes, miss? Yes, you should see her eyes when she delivers that speech. The raven himself is hoarse that croaks the fatal end. Hey, miss, look there. What is it? That foreign-looking cove in the black cape coming along the passage now. Easy. I beg your pardon. You are Miss Louise Fenton, aren't you? Uh, yes, my name is Fenton. What is it? I am looking for Arnheim, a friend of Mr. White's. And I must see Marcia Blair at once. No, you don't, Governor. You're not going in there. Why not? Because nobody goes in there. Not if it was the king himself. That's orders. Now listen to me, both of you. When the lights went on, I happened to be looking at box D from the other side of the theater. And I think yes. there is something wrong. But there can't be anything wrong. Jim Bradley and I have been sitting here the whole time. Except, of course... Except when? Well, except when I went in there for a few seconds. You went in there, Miss Fenton? May I ask when that was? Well, it was after Mr. White had gone and just before the play started. I went in to ask if she wanted anything. She said she didn't, so I came out again. And Bradley's been with me all the time, except when he went to get a drink of water up the corridor. That's as true as gospel, Captain. One moment and listen to me. Marcia Blair is leaning forward across the railing of the box. Oh, but that's nothing, Herr von Arnheim. That's the way she always is. Does she always fall forward with her arms held straight out and her head down on her arms? You better be careful, miss. It's a trick. Trick? Why not open the door and see for yourselves? Would that do any harm? No, I... I suppose it wouldn't, but... Oh, there must be some mistake. We haven't heard a sound from in there. There couldn't be anything wrong. You open the door, Miss Fenton. I'm going to hold tight to this gentleman just in case. <laughs> Quiet, please. Quiet. What is it, miss? Oh. Walk in there with me, both of you. Please go carefully, as though nothing were wrong. We don't want to attract attention. Now. Oh, help on, on I. There's blood all over her face. Yes. And don't begin screaming again, Miss Fenton, when I tell you she's dead. Bradley? Uh, yes, sir. Pick Miss Blair's body up and carry her out into the corridor. In another minute, we'll have the whole theater wanting to know what's wrong. All right, sir. You win. But what about the people in the other boxes? Won't they see? They've gone down to the bar to get a drink. They won't see anything. Hurry. Uh, uh, she ain't no lightweight, the poor lady ain't. Uh, steady does it. Uh, hold the door open. That's got it. Now, close the door. Shall I... Put her down on the floor, Captain? Yes, better do that. I never took those threats seriously. That's what I blame myself for. And if something did happen, well, I, I thought he'd attack her. I never thought he'd hide away across the theater and fire a shot. And you were quite right, Miss Fenton. Marcia Blair was not shot. She... She wasn't shot. No, take a look at the wound. Oh, I can't look at it. She was stabbed. Stabbed through the right eye oh. with a narrow, sharp blade which entered her brain and killed her instantly. Not a pretty death, but a quick one. You seem to know a lot about this, Governor. Perhaps I do, my friend, and perhaps I can guess a lot more. You mean somebody stood out there and threw a knife at her? Like a ready music hall turn? No, I don't mean that either. There's no knife in the wound and none in the box. The murderer took it away. <laughs> took it away? Exactly. Herr von Arnheim, please wait. You're not saying someone climbed up from outside. 
20 or 30 feet from the floor and stab poor Marcia in full sight of 3,000 people? That, Miss Fenton, is what the evidence seems to indicate. But it's impossible. Yet it happened. There is Marcia Blair's body. What's that? Oh, it's the warning bell for the second act. People will be coming back here anyway, any minute. What are we going to do? effects by Ludwig von Arnheim. Very few persons knew that there is a dead woman in the theater. But at the end of the play, it is a different story. The crowd files out past a cordon of police. The lights are extinguished. The great theater is dark and mumbling with echoes. See the stage now? Only the battens or overhead lights pour down a pale blaze on two men who stand grotesquely against the background of Dunsinane Castle. One of these men is Howard White, very near collapse. The other is Myron Willard himself, still wearing his makeup still wearing helmet and chain mail. And when Willard speaks... Howard! Howard White! Confounded man, can't you hear what I'm saying? Excuse me, madam. I think this is almost finished. Oh, not that I'm blaming you, old man. Thank you, madam. It's traditional, you know, that Macbeth's an unlucky play. But up to the very end, I thought I'd never done better. Eleven curtain calls. No, twelve. Uh, how did you like my tomorrow and tomorrow speech? Hmm? I'm sorry, madam. I'm afraid I didn't hear it. Oh, I... Yes, poor old Marcia. She'd have hated to die like that. Marcia was proud of her eyes. Always nearsighted as an owl, but too vain to wear glasses. Uh, there's Von Arnheim looking at us from under the castle archway. Von Arnheim! Did you call me, my friend? You're rather difficult to recognize under all that Macbeth makeup. Yes, I was just thinking the same thing. Uh, never mind that. Uh, where are the police now? At the moment, Mr. Willard, the police are in your dressing room. They are using it for questioning. Uh, no reception tonight, of course. No, but I thought you might be interested in two items of information that police have just discovered. Well, go on. We had a fairly full house tonight, I believe. Fairly full. Every seat was reserved. Reserved, yes, but not occupied. I don't follow you. One box on the ground floor, box E, to be exact, was empty. Reserved and paid for, but empty. And box E, oddly enough, was just underneath the one occupied by Marcia Blair. All the same, I still don't see quite what you're... Now, our next item of information comes from an usher. 
An outside aisle seat in the stores, very close to that empty box, was occupied by a very curious stranger who arrived late in the dark and slipped out again by a nearby exit a few minutes afterwards. Just one moment, Von Arnheim. Are you saying this stranger climbed up and attacked Marcia in full view of the audience? No, my friend. The murderer did not approach from that direction. Then he must have reached Marcia through the door, guarded by Bradley and Miss Fenton? No, not from that direction either. Confound it, man. It must have been one way or the other. Not necessarily. Tell me how. Don't you think I've got enough troubles already without this nightmare on top of it? Herr von Arnheim. Herr von Arnheim. You must take it easy, Miss Fenton. You must not excite yourself. Have the police been... Yes. Look, you've got to help me. They won't believe me. They won't believe the young lady, sir, and that's a fact. I've tried to help her all I can, but there's things I can swear to and things I can't. You see, I did go into that box. Oh, just for a couple of seconds, I admit it. But no other person went in or could have got in. So they say, or at least they're hinting that I killed her. But I swear I never touched her. Who was questioning you, Miss Fenton? Inspector Grimes or Sergeant Blake? I'm... Well, I'm not sure. The sergeant, I think. Then I shouldn't worry if I were you. Inspector Grimes knows better. He's guessed, in fact, exactly what I have guessed. You seem on rather familiar terms with the police, my friend. I am, Mr. Willard. I am. Anyone who practices escapes from handcuffs, sacks, chests... And stage boxes, perhaps. Stage boxes, if you insist. Excuse me. Isn't that Inspector Grimes in the wings now? Yes, and he's nodding his head. Then I can tell you, I think, what you want to know. Well, if you do happen to know anything, it's your duty to speak up. Poor Marcia seems to have had some ridiculous idea that her former husband, Barry Lake, was still alive. Her fears weren't justified, of course, and she wasn't killed by any dead husband. I beg your pardon. Her fears were justified, though not quite in the way she believed. And she was killed by her husband. Then Barry Lake is still alive. No, Barry Lake is dead. You don't mean Marcia was really killed by a ghost. No. I mean she was killed by her devoted second husband, Mr. Howard White. Do you know hear what they say? That's not true. It's a slanderous statement. I, I'll have you in court for it. I, everybody knows how devoted I was to Marcia. Your devotion, my friend, was devotion to her money. And your business affairs have been shaky for a long time. That's not true and you can't prove it. Marcia Blyer was inclined to be, shall we say, a little close-fisted with money. That's true anyway. It's she a lie, a lie. Willing to marry him, but Mr. Howard White knew he'd never touch a penny unless he killed her. He wrote the letters himself. Herr von Arnheim, he can't be guilty. She was alive after he left the box. He wasn't anywhere near her when she died. Perfectly correct, Miss Fenton. He wasn't there and yet he killed her. Exactly. But you and Bradley can supply the clue that will hang him. Uh, me, sir? I don't know nothing. No, I don't either. I think you do if you'll put your mind to it. Do you remember what Howard White said to her just before he left the box? Uh, yes. He said, Good night, Marcia. See you in an hour or two. And she answered, Good night and good luck. No, I mean just before that. I. Well, there wasn't anything. <laughs> you see? It's a slanderous statement without any proof. It's an insult to my position on the stock exchange. Wait. I do remember something rather queer. Think, Miss Fenton, think. He said to Marcia jokingly, if you'll accept these, madam, in honor of our first anniversary. And Marcia said, Howard, they're lovely. Of course I'll accept them. That's right, sir. He did say it. And what do you think he was referring to, Miss Fenton? What was he asking her to accept? Well, I imagined it was flowers, a corsage or something like that. Did you see any flowers in the box or pinned to Marcia Blair's gown? No. I come to think of it, I didn't. Then what did he give her? Uh, don't look at me, sir. Now, here is a woman who is very nearsighted, yet refuses to wear glasses. 
But she can accept a pair of... Opera glasses. Miss Lie, you can't prove it. Hold on, sister. Go. You better stay here, Captain. Thank you, Bradley. But the place is surrounded with police. But I still don't understand. Now, what happens when you lift opera glasses to your eyes and they are not in focus? You turn the little wheel in the middle to bring them into focus. For Marcia Blair, it was deadly. You mean the, the glasses had... Yes, been... they were specially constructed glasses, Miss Fenton. They were invented by a French criminal years ago. That little wheel is a little trigger. It releases the spring of a sharp, thin blade which strikes through the eyes into the brain. Oh, don't, please. You can't prove it. Marcia Blair died instantly. The glasses torn from her eye by their own weight dropped over the box rail to the carpeted aisle below. The only witnesses who might have noticed would have been the people in the box just underneath. And that box was empty? By arrangement, yes. Even if anybody did see them fall, Howard White was prepared to remove the evidence instantly. You haven't forgotten the curious stranger. Curious stranger? I mean, the man who slipped in after it was dark, took an aisle seat just under the box, and slipped out again a few minutes later. It's a pack of lies from start to finish. You can't prove a word of it. I beg your pardon, my friend. Didn't you see Inspector Grimes nod to me a moment ago? Well, you are going to hang, my friend, for one of the neatest and cruelest crimes in my experience. The police have just found those opera glasses with a neat set of fingerprints in the side pocket of your motor car. And so ends Fireburn and Cauldron Bubble, starring the distinguished actor Paul Lucas. Tonight's tale of suspense. This is your narrator, Ted Osborne, the man in black, who conveys to you Columbia's invitation to spend this half hour in suspense with us again next Tuesday, same time when Nancy Coleman stars in Fear Paints a Picture. William Spear, the producer, John Dietz, the director, Bernard Herman, the composer-conductor, Robert Salmon, studio technician, and John Dixon Carr, the author, collaborated on tonight's Suspense. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. Thank you for listening. Tomorrow night, it's the Fred Allen Show, followed by Inner Sanctum. Thanks to Joel Schoenwell for technical support. The executive producer for Theater of the Mind is Moses Neimer. I'm Frank Proctor. Have a great evening. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.